This is Our American Stories. And on this show, we talk about everything from music to sports to history and particularly relationships, which are really important to us, and parenting. And today we're talking to a medical doctor in North Carolina who sees a big part of her job, get this, as coaching parents. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, known to her patients as Dr. Rose, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for a whopping 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills, and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. And we're going to call you Dr. Rose because your patients do. Thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, you bet. You know, one of my favorite shows in my brides is Modern Family because I think what it gets right is there are just so many types of families now, and that's just the reality. And my mom was essentially raised by her grandmother because her mom was busy working to support the kids. The father had left the scene. And let's talk today about uh, a different type of mom because there are many different types of moms. Sometimes the mom isn't present. Mom could have died. Mom could have been in prison. Mom could have just left the scene, or mom is just not present. Uh, talk about the, this latest story that we're going to dig into today. Well, um, I have a patient that I've been seeing for over a year, and she uh, was in third grade when she started seeing me. She is very, very charming, throws a smile like you can't believe, but she was said to be cognitively impaired. In other words, she's just not smart enough. That's what they wanted to say about this young lady in school. She didn't know how to read. She didn't know how to do math. Poor girl hardly knew how to do anything at school. She just couldn't do a thing. But she could smile nice, and she would charm anybody into doing whatever she needed to do and say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. Well, great-grandmother was a person that was raising her. Her mom had uh, left her when she was very, very young and left her with her grandma. Her grandma was a person who had to take care of the rest of the home, uh, and she's a nurse, and she works uh, two jobs, and her husband uh, was, had a whole bunch of medical conditions and, and had uh, psychological conditions as well, so that she had her hands full. And so she delivered the the child to the great-grandmother. And so this was one big unit, Uh, the mom who's going in and out of the home, the grandmother who is a a present figure in the sense of she's she's there, but she's always absent because she is the financial, she's essentially the dad. And now the great-grandma is raising a child two generations down. So this girl uh, was not behaving well at home, and she wasn't doing what she was told to do, obviously, Uh, and she would not tidy up her room at all and looked like she couldn't even do things with her hands, and and they were afraid that she was disabled. They were looking to to complete disability uh, application for her uh, because, well, she's just not going to get anywhere in life, poor thing. The school also uh, agreed that this young girl had problems at school, uh, and and intellectually, so I took a nice uh, one of those uh, sort of New England or or Noah Webster's uh, primer, 
and started opening it up. And I said, this is how you read. So we started from scratch. I was able to assess that even though this young girl was in third grade, she was reading at the level of a first grader. Uh, but she could write kind of nicely if she set her mind to it. And I took this time in the office to make sure that I knew where she was coming from. And then I made her do some things uh, with, with her hands, and then I was able to see, oh, she, she has good uh, fine and, and gross motor skills. I don't see any problems with how she's able to do things. So I said, uh, Mom, uh, and I said, I'm going to call you Mom from now on because it's great-grandmother. That's just too long, and, and really you're acting like the mom. Uh, I don't see that there's anything wrong with her. I think that we've just left her as a first grader, and we've kind of, I might have to call you the, the charming scammer. Uh, but I don't know that there's anything wrong. She's just very comfortable in being more like a six-year-old than a nine-year-old. And uh, let me put her, we have a, a private pro, uh, private tutoring program that we we have through the clinic. It's it's uh, it, It's completely a gift to the community. It's done through a small church. We accept about 25 uh, kids, and those kids uh, are tutored in, in turn by high school students, uh, sort of senior and, and junior years, that come in and they do a one-on-one tutoring program, and it's only once a week. I said to my daughter, Hannah, Hannah, this young girl needs your attention one by, one-on-one. She needs to be retaught how to learn, and I want you to go through the Noah Webster's primer with her so you can teach her how to, how to read. Once she starts reading, she's going to get her self-confidence up, and she won't be um, bullied and made fun of in school. And once that happens, she will start turning into a different girl. Well, uh, we had to see what was going to happen in the next few weeks, and that's, that's pretty much what my daughter was able to do through the tutoring program. Well, let's uh, hold it right there, because what's going to be interesting is what happens afterwards. We've got a great-grandmother acting as the mother. We've got this sweet, charming kid who, in a sense, isn't getting ahead, but not, might not be getting ahead because no one's pushing her, and she's, as you put it, a charmer, and possibly even, and we know kids are capable of this, so I'm not going to say this pejoratively, but kids can be scam artists. And uh, unless you hold them accountable, they're going to do as little as possible, some kids. And so when we come back on the other side of this break, we're going to find out what Dr. Rose did with this charming young girl, and by the way, her daughter, and how Dr. Rose coached this great-grandmother-turned-mom uh, into a mom and how she made her a better mom. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Dr. Rose, more about this young young girl. And I, I just see that sweet smile because I got to tell you, my little girl has the ability to scam, and she is a master, and we have always got to watch ourselves. And I love her dearly. I love you, Reagan, but you know what we're talking about. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Dr. Rose, which we love to do. 
regularly here on Our American Stories because we love telling the stories of parents and their kids. And parents aren't always mom and dad. Sometimes they're grandma, granddad, an uncle, a great aunt, a great grandmother. In this particular case, it's a great grandmother. And let's pick up what we left off with this charming, as we would almost want to call her, a little bit of a, a scammer. A good kid who people had misdiagnosed. And by the way, this happens all the time, Dr. Rose. School systems just routinely get it wrong. And I don't want to throw them under the bus because they've got so many problems. But I think more often than not, they just tend to categorize people, take that quick snapshot, and they just don't have the time, nor do they have the tools to really figure out what's going on in these kids' lives. That's right. And and. Part of the problem is that we don't have a go-to person. We don't have somebody to fall back on that will become a, our source of, uh, of common sense. And we have to, and with all of this, that's what I want parents to remember, is that we need stability and common sense. Even when it's a very unstable, uh, difficult world, we need to have one person that we can go back to and say, Aunt Peggy, uh, Grandma, what what would you do? What 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 did I do when this happened? What had, did you handle this? And so remember that, uh, so that you have that source. And if you don't have that source, perhaps a church, perhaps a neighbor that you can count on. But we all have that one person who's looking at us and would want to perhaps lend a hand, but they're they're afraid that you might brush them off. And conversely, grandma and neighbor. If you see a mom who's struggling and you can offer some word of advice, then in a loving way, in a patient way, offer that. You will see how that will flourish. Just bring them over maybe a quiche or a a dinner or a a dessert. Show that you care. And that'll that'll open a door. That'll start things. And don't come in right away giving your advice, obviously. Get in there, get the trust first. And then the advice can actually flow. Let's find out now what happens next with this young girl, your daughter. What, what happens next, Dr. Rose? So Hannah, my daughter, dedicated herself for weeks on end to this young lady until she comes back one day and she says, Mom, she's got it. She's done with the book. And this was like three months later. And I said, but the book goes through all of first grade. How can she have all of the book done? Yeah, I had to give her to somebody else because she knows the book by heart now, and if I open it to a certain page, she knows what the words are even before you open it. And I, and I was in disbelief. I said, there's no way that that girl, from not being able to read almost at a first-grade level, is able to finish that whole book, and now she's able to process the, the words and understand them as she's reading. But she did. I went into the tutoring program, and I said, oh, I, I needed to read for me, and she was reading pretty well. And so the next time, and I figured, okay, well, I probably won't have much to do at home anymore. Uh, so when great-grandma comes in, I'll just ask her whether we should, you know, stop the, the, the coaching classes and whether we're okay now. Uh, but grandma, great-grandma came in, and she says, well, she's doing better in school, and I'm not hearing from anything at school, but we're having lots of problems at home. And she told me that she was having problems where this young lady is now being very, very sneaky. She would, where are these things? Mm-hmm. And what would happen was that she would say, oh, no, it's not, it, 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 I wasn't at, I don't know anything of what you're talking about, and I, I, I'm, I'm upset that you're asking me. Wow. Wow. 
but there was nobody in the house to take the thing that disappeared. So mom got a great grandma got a little smart and she started going into the room and there she would find everything and it was all under the bed or under the 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 first layer of the mattress or be away in the in the tiny little corner in 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 the closet. And this this mom who's the great grandmother came back to me very concerned. Oh my goodness. We have a kleptomaniac. I have a, a son who was a kleptomaniac. What is happening? Is it genetic? I said, no, this is not genetic. Now, there are tendencies to behave in a certain way, Mm -hmm. but the mom voice needs to straighten that out. And you, my dear, need to become the mom. You have allowed for everybody else to step in and for everything to be an excuse. If not her, the the grandmother or the school or the, the, the granddad who won't step in. But now it's time for you to say, as a great-grandmother, and no, this is not fair that you should be raising a child when you're in your 70s and somebody else should be raising her for you. But are, are you willing to save this child's life? Are you willing to do everything that you need to do so that she is not destitute and out on the street, and has truly become a kleptomaniac and a compulsive liar and a criminal behind jail, because now we know that she can read and she can do things for herself. But the hardest thing to fix is going to be her heart and her character. Yep. And this is where you need to get strong. Yep. And what, what was the reaction? I assume you'd, have, you'd had the trust of, the, of this great-grandmother. Uh, what what was her reaction when you put that upon her? And by the way, I love the way you did that because you didn't actually put it upon her. You just let her know that it, but for her actions, some really bad things could happen. And I also like that you added that it's not fair because I'm sure that's what she's thinking every minute. Do I finally get a break from this? I'm 70. And your answer was in the end, well, not if you want to save this kid. No. That's no. right. That's exactly right. And then I thanked her because if she hadn't intervened when she did, who knows where this child would be? And she was just an inch away at that point from just saying, you know, I can just take her to DSS. Why should I be raising a great-grandchild? She, she, and, and mom's not around. I can just have mom fill out the, 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 the custody forms to give her over to the state. And I said, thank you for saving her up until now. And understand that if you walk away from her, you have saved her to a path that nobody else has done so, so far. And that is to be commended. You're the only person who stepped in full-time, changed your life so that she could have a life. And I want to thank you for that because you're not going to get many people to thank you. No. And and so then I had a little buy-in, and she said, of course I can't step away from her. It's nice to sort of think that I can step away from her. But I can't step away from my great-granddaughter if it's the last thing I do. And that is when I told her, look, if you, can't, if you can't do this, if grandma can't do this, if daughter can't do this, just understand that this young lady has a home in my home. At the moment that you can't do this, I will not let your great-granddaughter just um, think. I will take her into my home until you tell me I can do it again, or until it, it's, it's time. All of the weight went from her, and she sort of, she, she just, just 
really had a really deep breath and said, you know, I just needed somebody to say that. Mm. I just needed to know that there's somebody else looking after my great-granddaughter and that perhaps it doesn't just have to fall all of this on me. Yeah. And what was really interesting is that from that, the story came out that she, the little the girl, had thoughts that her mom would come into her life and save her from all of the stuff that was coming, that was happening to her, and that, that people were accusing her, supposedly, of these things, and, and that someday her mom would come, whisk her away, and take her into this life that she's been waiting for all of her life. And I said, I am so sorry. I love you so much, but that's just not going to happen. Yep. Nobody is going to take you to that fantasy world. Your great-grandmother is your mom. You have her. Stop waiting for somebody else. God gave her to you and you to her so that you can be raised by her and so that you would listen to her voice. And that grandma just looked, your great-grandma just looked at me, and she understood that for all of this time, this girl had been living in a sort of a fantasy world where I don't have to listen to you because my mom is going to come in here and she's going to whisk me away someday, and she is going to to pull me back into that world where she lives, and everything will be just perfect. Well, Dr. Rose, you changed the paradigm in the end, and uh, in the end changed everything for a little girl and her new mom, and a new reality in the end. This is Lee Habib. We love these stories, and we love having Dr. Rose on to share them. And I know there's a little part of all these stories in all of our lives, and we can't help but admit it to ourselves. We know it's true. We know people who know people who are in these stories. And this is Our American Stories. Thank you, Dr. Rose, for doing what you do. stories and we're back with one of our favorite subjects and favorite topics random acts of kindness you can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org it's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids also make sure to leave any story you've encountered on there as well and today we have a special installment of our random acts of kindness segment if you have any cops among your friends and family you know they don't like to self-promote so we called the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, Joe Gamaldi, and chatted for a bit about some of the good work their officers have been doing. And again, we can't overemphasize this. 
we have to practically pull these good stories out of them, not because they don't happen, but because these are mostly public servants, a lot of them ex-militaries, we learn over and over again, and they just have servants' hearts. And servants don't brag. This is what, as Chris Rock always used to say, you're supposed to do these things. What, you want a cookie? <laughs> exactly. I pay the rent. You're supposed to pay the rent. <laughs> these officers conduct themselves with a quiet humility, even the more senior ones. But the kindness rarely makes it into the press. You know, oftentimes what people hear about us in the community is, is these harrowing tales of us, you, you know, saving someone or, you know, being involved in defending the, the defenseless. But, but sometimes our officers are out there just doing these random acts of kindness to really show the community that we're a part of the community just like they are and that we're people just like they are. Uh, we're not this uh, mysterious entity. Uh, we're people and we have big hearts. And, you know, if you ask any police officer why he got into police work, the answer is always going to be, I wanted to help people. And one of the stories I wanted to share was about a sergeant we have that's assigned to the homeless outreach team. What they essentially do is they go out into the community and they make contact with the homeless and try to get them medical services, if they're in need of getting an ID so that they get into a shelter. They'll help them in any number of issues, um, you know, even government assistance to try to get them off the streets and get them back into housing and get them back into the workforce as well. Well, in particular, uh, Sergeant Steve Wick saw a gentleman who was walking. He was homeless. He had no shoes on. Uh, you know, the man hadn't showered in a long time. Uh, his feet looked to be in bad condition. So Sergeant Steve Wick took it upon himself to take this gentleman to their, uh, to their facility. And then he proceeded to actually wash this gentleman's feet and clip his toenails for him. Now, I can't tell you the last time the man had, uh, had bathed his feet or anything like that, but this sergeant, what he did was basically show the world, we're people, and we just want to help folks. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, there's a biblical uh, angle to all this as well. You know, Jesus washed other people's feet, and and this sergeant stepped up and did the same for a homeless man. And uh, I think it really speaks to the type of people that we are. I'd say. And, my goodness, it is the kind of story you almost need to, out of almost social responsibility, push out there. Because, my goodness, folks don't think about those kinds of things. And most of us avoid those people on the street. And these officers not only have a heart for these folks, they're trying to find a home for them. Houston police officers feel the need to help and protect everyone, no matter how new they are to the city. There is Officer Lariano, who works down in our Central Patrol. Uh, he was just riding patrol on his normal day, and it happened to be extremely cold out in Houston, which is rare for us, but it does happen. <laughs> Um, he saw some folks walking on the side of the road, just not with the proper clothes for the weather. And what really drew him to them was that they had two kids with them. One was 14 and one was two, and it was a family of four. So he approached them and made contact with them, basically just to see if they were okay. You know, he didn't get a call. No one called this in. He took it upon himself to check on a family who were in basically shorts and a T-shirt in winter weather. When he approached them, uh, he started speaking with them. And they essentially told him that these were Cuban refugees. They had come up through South America, through Mexico, and had entered the country legally for asylum. And it was incredible that they had made it this far, number one. But now that here they were in Houston, they knew no one. No government services had kicked in yet. So they were just wandering the streets of Houston in the middle of the winter. And this officer, uh, you know, the type of guy he is and the heart that he has, he just couldn't see them. And he couldn't just drive past. He had to stop. 
And once he figured out what was going on, he could have left. He could have simply referred them to a shelter and been done. But that's not the type of people we are. So Officer Lariano took it upon himself to go to the store and buy $500 worth of winter clothing so that all, from his own pocket to make sure that all of these, uh, these family members had clothing. But he didn't stop there. He then started calling every single shelter in the city to try to get them into a family shelter. And for those of you who don't know, it's very difficult to get an entire family. Usually they'll just take children or women, and they separate men and women. But they wanted to stay together as a family, obviously so, after the harrowing tale that they had told him. So he took it upon himself. He contacted these shelters. One said, well, we can let them stay on the property, but we can't let them stay in the building. So the officer took it upon himself once again to find a tent so that they could stay in a tent on the shelter property so at least they could stay together as a family. And most people would say that at this point the officer had done enough. He had done his duty. He, he had done everything that he could do for this family, but not our officers. He didn't stop there. The next day he went back to that shelter. He checked on the family once again, and from there began working on establishing permanent housing for that family. And he also worked on making sure that the, all the government services were activated accordingly for someone in their position. And as a result of that, from the hard work of this officer, they were able to get them into permanent housing and actually get the um, father integrated into society to where he now has a job. And in this story, we learn that the Houston police officers are truly here to help. Just ask. There was actually a homeless mother, and she was the mother of two children, um, both children with disabilities. Uh, so you can imagine the difficulties that this mother already has, and, and now the fact that she's homeless on top of it. So she walked into a police station, and one of our officers, Officer Escobar, was working the front desk. She started talking to him, saying, you know, she needed help and that she was homeless and that she doesn't have, uh, you know, anywhere for her children to stay. Uh, and, of course, this officer did the same thing that, that Officer Lariano did at first, which was let's call these shelters and figure out a place that they could stay. But, of course, there was no room at any of these shelters for this woman and her two children. So instead, this officer took it upon himself to take money out of his own pocket to pay for, ho for a hotel room for several nights so that this family could have a roof over their head. But he didn't stop there. Him and his wife actually contacted a local radio station, and they did uh, – they – asked their family and friends and folks from that were listening to the radio station to donate money and they were able to essentially get this family into a hotel room for you know a month by the by the money they'd raised and they continued to work with this family and they've established um, you know a permanent residence for them now so that they no longer have to stay in a hotel room they no longer have to stay on the street and these children with disabilities and the mother that's taking care of them they now have a roof over their head all thanks to this officer taking the time to listen, and pulling money out of his own pocket to make sure they had a place to stay. You know, she, she found that help, exactly what she was looking for at the police station, and I think it really sends a positive message to everybody in the community. When you need help, we are there. Whether it's a police station or whether you call 911, we are here to help you. You know, don't be fooled by what some folks in the media or some politicians may tell you. We are here to help you. And if you need help, all you have to do is reach out. And it's so true, and they are there when you call, and they do come and respond to dangerous situations when we ask them to, and they don't, I don't think they care if we say thank you. I mean, it'd be a nice thing to do, but we say thank you here on Our American Stories, and this is our way of showing gratitude to 
all of the officers who do all the things they do, and these particular ones here at the Houston, Houston PD. And we were just hearing from the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, Joe Gamaldi. And we're going to be always telling stories about cops and first responders as long as we do our American stories. Our Random Acts of Kindness segment, as always. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. More after these messages. our American stories and we talk about almost everything on this show and we love to do stories about a lot of things but redemption is one of them and we're not into just seeking out stories for the bleed for the blood for the collision for the conflict Um, every once in a while we might bring you a story like that but for the most part we're just looking to, to just track down good stories and faith uh, her beat is just finding these short, great, uplifting stories from around the country and gathering them together. And Faith has assembled a few. Let's take a listen. We begin with Lieutenant Osborne of Athens, Georgia. He was deployed in Afghanistan and didn't think he would make it home for the birth of his daughter. Until something wonderful happened. Um, First Lieutenant Jake Osborne, uh, originally from right here in Athens. I deployed to Afghanistan at the end of October, um, and we found out the good news about her and uh, I'd say sometime in September, so right before I was getting ready to leave. Been hoping to get home this entire time and didn't look like I was going to be able to, and, and on the 12th of May, my, my commander came in and said, hey, pack your bags, you know, we're going to send you home on leave. Uh, so it ended up being perfect timing. <laughs> they got me on a bird out of Afghanistan in less than two days. I was sitting in uh, in a restaurant right across from my gate in the Nashville airport when I got the news, uh, <laughs> waiting on my flight. So my luckily my sister was uh, she was in the operating room with them and, and was giving me the play-by-play. Both mom and baby are healthy, thank goodness. So Chelsea has been joking with me this entire time I've been gone, saying that it hasn't, she doesn't think it had really set in that to, with me that we were about to have a baby. And, uh, you know, I was like, yes, you know, it has, it has. And we walked in and, and I rounded the corner and she's sitting there smiling with uh, Paisley in her arm. And I, I froze at the door. I stopped. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I was... I was giggling like a little schoolgirl, you know. It was just unreal, unlike anything I've ever felt. She'll break you down. Yeah, she uh, <laughs> she will will bring a grown man to his knees. It's been fantastic. Everybody's been extremely helpful. Um, 
been in around the clock, you know, looking looking after both mama and baby. So that's all we can ask. A week from today, I'll be heading back. So, but just just for a couple months to finish it out, and then uh, we'll be when I come back next time. We'll be back in uh, Tennessee, back home. So. In Savannah, Georgia, six-year-old Jaden Hayes finds a way to turn his sorrow into joy. Not just for himself, but for others as well. It is every kid's worst nightmare, and six-year-old Jaden Hayes has lived it. Ah! Twice. First, he lost his dad when he was four. Then last month, his mom died unexpectedly in her sleep. I tried and I tried and I tried to get her awake. Couldn't. Jaden is understandably heartbroken. Anybody can die. That's anybody. But there's another side to his grief. A side he first made public a few weeks ago when he told his aunt and now guardian, Barbara DeCola, that he was sick and tired of seeing everyone sad all the time. And he had a plan wow. to fix it. And that was the beginning of it. That's where the adventure began. <laughs> Jaden asked his Aunt Barbara to buy a bunch of little toys and bring them here to downtown Savannah, Georgia, near where he lives. Thank you, sweetie. So he could then... You want me to have it? ...give them away. Thank you, man. What is it you're doing? Well, I'm trying to make people smile. Rubber duckies, dinosaurs... Because those are the things that make people smile. Yeah. See that man right there? Jaden targets people who aren't already smiling and then turns their day around. You made me smile. He's gone out on four different occasions now, and he's always successful. It's to make you smile. Even if sometimes he doesn't get exactly the reaction he was hoping for. It is just so overwhelming to some people that a six-year-old orphan would give away a toy expecting nothing in return except a smile. Of course, he is paid handsomely in hugs. Are you? And his aunt says these reactions have done wonders for Jaden. It's like sheer joy came out of this child. And the more people that he made smile, the more this light shone. Jaden says that's mostly true. But I'm still sad that my mom died. I bet you are. This is by no means a fix. But in the smiles he's made so far, nearly 500 at last count, Jaden has clearly found a purpose. I'm counting on it to be 33,000. 33,000? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big goal. Mm-hmm. You think you can make that goal? Uh-huh. I think I can. I think he just did. Finally, a story from Alabama about Allison and Josh Lewis, who had an unexpected surprise when adopting their son. And we can remember back when we said, when we were early engaged and early married, Oh, we'll have two, maybe three maybe, kids. Maybe three. And um, here we are, seven kids later, four biological, three adopted. We thought that we were, our family was probably complete after number five, after Julia. So the Lord had a different plan for us than we thought. Allison got a text message from our friend Jeanette saying that she knew of somebody that was pregnant, uh, but wasn't going to be able to keep the babies uh, or the baby and wanted us to know if we would consider opening our home to that little one. We uh, talked about it for the night and prayed of it over the weekend. And on Monday, we were quite certain that, that was the direction that we needed to go. And so we hopped in the car and we started driving to North Carolina where they were born. And we got to the South Carolina border and our phone rang with, our, um, with news from our adoption attorney. 
She wanted to know if Josh had both hands on the steering wheel because she had some had some news to share with us that um, there were actually two babies and not one. Josh drove going <sighs> about an hour after that phone call, we got another one letting us know that um, she was really sick and not expected to survive delivery. So we went from overwhelmed and elated to overwhelmed and just crushed over the thought that she wouldn't be alive when we got there. I jumped out and I ran inside and um, headed up to, to NICU. And not only had she survived delivery, but she was breathing on her own and everything looked pretty good. But they told us when we got there that she had gross abnormalities in her brain and that um, they didn't know if she would you know, survive the night or the week, the hour, when they shared with us her diagnosis and let us know that beyond a brainstem, she didn't have anything. You know, she said, what makes a person a person is not there. Medically, I understand what she's saying, but she totally has a personality. Yeah, she's feisty. She's a feisty little thing. She's... There you go. Who says I don't have a personality? <laughs> we knew she was still part of, going to be part of our family, regardless of the prognosis, so. Yeah, the Lord had created her life, and... The fact that she wasn't born the way we would have chosen or the um, what we would have wanted in an ideal world didn't change that she needed a family and she had a twin brother that needed her and we needed her. We didn't know it, but she's been the perfect addition along with Sam to our family. For me, the hardest part was those first two and a half weeks at Duke when it was a day by day. Is she going to be here tomorrow? Is she going to be here through the night? That was a lot to learn to love her fully and also feeling like at the exact same time we were going to be letting her go. Yeah. We talk openly with the kids. They know that Ava's life will be probably far shorter than what any of us would <laughs> far shorter than what any of us would want for her, but they know that we've got a lot of love to pack into a short period of time. We're just trying to live every single day and just enjoy this time with her and make memories with her and the, and the kids are getting to spend a ton of time with her and she and Sam spend loads of time together. It's just a sweet, sweet, it's a sweet time in our family. The biggest joy out of this whole thing was getting to sit across from their birth mom the morning after they were born. They were 12 hours old and thank her for preserving their lives. She just walked through a lot to give them life and oh just overwhelmed with thankfulness to her and just honored that the Lord would let us be the choice that she made she did make a choice and we're just so thankful that bringing these guys into our family was the choice that she made yeah it wasn't hard to say yes to bringing her home it was hard Whew. It was hard to say yes, knowing that we were going to be burying her before long. And wow, Faith, those are just uh, fantastic. Any sources you want to thank? Any 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 particular people on that story? Two of them were from liftable.com, mm -hmm. um, which has great stories. I was crying all morning when I was looking through the Liftable website, watching all of these videos of stories just like this. Um, the last one probably is the one that hit me the most because 
Just their selflessness, I think. Yep. Selflessness, love, and overcoming obstacles. We're seeing it all in these stories. I think that's why people love going to Liftable. Uh, We take the stories where we find them. Sometimes it's local news. Faith, as always, doing these stories for us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Stories you don't generally hear in the big media, but stories that we think we know we're sure you want to hear. American stories and on this day in history in the year 1919 an American giant was born a giant that you likely don't know a giant whose impact we all take for granted now as a fact of American life a black football coach at a time when black players in the south pretty much had no option but to play at historically black colleges but this would change and would change because of this coach's success From 1941 to 1997, he coached at the same university. You heard that right, 1941 to 1997, in a profession where guys bounce around every three to five years. It was a tiny but mighty university in Grambling, Louisiana, called Grambling State University. And while there, he racked up 408 wins, surpassing Alabama's legend, Bear Bryant, and his previous record, a record that has since only been surpassed by one man, the late Joe Paterno. His team's success inspired integration. White teams wanted that success, and his dominant players especially inspired integration, starting with Tank Younger in 1949, the first NFL player to come from an historically black college, He would coach 111 NFL players, including Hall of Famers Willie Brown, Willie Davis, Charlie Joyner, and Doug Williams. By the way, Doug being the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl and who also won the MVP award. And in 1985, this coach even graced the cover of Sports Illustrated, the only cover the magazine has ever devoted to a program at a black college. This coach's name, Eddie Robinson. And for the hour, we're celebrating his life. And we're mostly going to do it through the story of one man whose life was forever changed by Coach Robinson as an example of his equally important legacy of molding men. This man we spoke with was Nehemiah Wilson, then just a kid from Baton Rouge who wanted to play some college football. Now, Eddie had talked to my high school coach and everything, and so he said, uh, Coach, he said, you might go get a lot of scholarship offers and everything. And he said, we need to kind of sew him up early. So Eddie said, man, he said, uh, he said, uh, Bert, he said, I got 
Jerry Robinson, yes, a sophomore, All-American. He said, I got Howard McCowan, I got Preston Powell, I got Jamie Caleb. And he said, all of these guys are 6'2", 200 and stuff like that. And he said, hell, he's a 155-pound kid and everything. So, uh, Bird said, Coach, I want you to come see him and everything like that. He said, because I'm putting him in the car and bring him up, but I want you to come see him. He said, well, I ain't going to have time to go see him and everything like that. So Coach say, all right, you go let him get away. Well, little did Bird I know, Robinson had went to my mama's job and talked to her. And when she came home, she came home to me crying. And uh, I said, what's wrong, mother? She said, baby, she said, I just met the most wonderful gentleman I've ever had. And I said, well, who? And everything. She said, Coach Eddie Robinson. And I said, well, I said, no, you didn't see Coach Robinson. I said, you saw somebody else. I said, Coach, Coach Bird told me he wasn't coming to see me. He said, baby, I'm telling you, he came to my job, and he told me how bad you wanted me, and he wanted you to play and everything. And he said, uh, I didn't know what to say because I didn't know what you were going to do or what you were going to go anyway. She said, but, baby, you know, he actually cried in front of me. <laughs> Somebody told her he promised her that I was going to class he promised her that I was going to church every Sunday. And at that time, you were getting a little subsistence with your scholarship of $20 for your your laundry and stuff like that. And he said, if he don't go to church and everything, he won't get that $20 and everything like that. She said, I'm going to do the same thing that you've been doing with him all his life. <laughs> and when Nehemiah got to Grambling, he and Eddie discovered a connection. They didn't know they had. My high school instructor was his mother-in-law, and uh, her name was Mott. And I was her favorite student. And so when he found out that she was my teacher and everything, then he started telling me things, you know, we started doing things. And then all of a sudden, his wife adopted me as her son at college, you know, and they got into quite a few arguments about me playing or not playing, <laughs> and so from that point on, you know, it was always a, a man that had a foot in his house, <laughs> you know. An adopted son whose father was never a part of his life. When Nehemiah's father returned from World War II, he didn't return to his family. He started another family elsewhere. So Nehemiah needed a father figure, but Eddie didn't see this at first, and later wrote in autobiography, Never Before, Never Again, here's the quote, I was having so much trouble with Nehemiah. I told my wife, Doris, I needed to talk to her about him. She looked at me and told me, you might be a pretty good coach, but you aren't real smart where the guys are concerned. Right under your nose, the reason you're having trouble with this young man is you carry him every place you carry Eddie. That's their son. He sees what you're doing, Freddie, and how you and Eddie are getting along. Nehemiah wants you to be his daddy, too. Doris helped me to really find that out. I wasn't aware of that fact, that it was happening. Ladies pay more attention to that kind of thing. Nehemiah had come from a home where he didn't have a daddy. I guess I became a father figure to Nehemiah, a mentor before I really knew what the word mentor even meant. 
I wanted to model my behavior for him to show Nehemiah how to succeed. So I began to include him with Eddie Jr. We took him to church, had him over for meals. I got better and better for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is still a part of our family. He's still my heart. So much more from this man, this legend, and in the end, this surrogate father for so many men. And this is what made him great. The great, late, Coach Eddie Robinson of Grambling State. After these messages. stories and we continue with our celebration of the life of coach Eddie Robinson the legend who made Grambling State University well Grambling State University and we've been talking to and we'll continue our conversation with Nehemiah and the father figure that coach Robinson became here's Nehemiah on what coach Robinson was trying to teach him all along you know, a young kid just coming out of high school, and everybody was offering you all kind of stuff, and you didn't know the value of any of it. You didn't know what to do with it or how how you go maintain it or, or anything. And he come back and he said, I'm going to make you a man first and a football player second. He said, because if I make you the football player first and not the man, he said, you ain't going to have no foundation to stand on and everything. And it took him four years to get that concept in my head. And now we're going to dive into how Coach Robinson did what he did. And one of the lessons he taught Nehemiah was about magnanimity, to have a vision for the future. I was up at Eddie's house, and uh, he had four TVs in it, one room and everything. So I said, Coach, I said, what is all these TVs doing up in here? And they're there. he said, hell, son, he said, on Sundays I got players playing with everybody. He said, I'm looking at every game and everything else like that. And he said, what that you got in my hand, in your hand? I said, well, I got a scrapbook in my hand. He said, your scrapbook for what? I said, from my years of high school football and everything like that. He said, he said son, put it away. I said, what do you mean? Put it away. He said, let me tell you something. He said, everybody come here got their own scrapbook and everything. He said, that scrapbook is your past. He said, but everybody here is good. Now, you're just not competing against guys at your school. He said, you're competing with guys all over the city and everything, and they got their own scrapbook, but it ain't what you've done in high school is what you're going to do here and are you going to fit in and everything, you know. I thought it was cruel at the time, you know, and everything. But then he said, you'll, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. 
Coach Robinson also taught Nimayo one of the most important lessons about women. I started dating a girl from New Orleans and everything, and so uh, we were sitting down in the lunchroom, and I was trying to be like all the other guys to the upperclassmen that had the girl. I'm saying, hey, I'm the man. You got to do whatever I want you to do, and like I want you to do it and everything. So she got up and walked out. And I said, don't walk out on me. I said, don't you know I'm the man? And everything, she kept going. So the next morning I went to breakfast, and she was in there, and I said, how you doing? She got up and left, you know. And so when I got back, I had a, a backfield coach named Tony Williams, and he told me, he said, well, I saw you talking to Miss Rito on campus. And I said, who is that? He said, the girl that you're dating now. I said, well, I'm not dating anybody now. But he said, this one here walking down the sidewalk. Oh, I said, yeah, I said, I know her. And everything. He said, ain't none of these guys ever, ever been able to sit at a table with her or talk to you and hear you all of a sudden you talk to her. I said, I was talking to her, but she's gone. And everything like that. So he said, well, what happened? I said, well, I told her I was the man, and she had to do what I said, and if she couldn't do what I say, don't come around me. I said, she got up from the table and walked away and never came back and everything. And so he told me laugh because, you know, he was that kind. And he thought it was funny, so he went and told it to Coach Rob after practice where all the coaches meeting. And so Coach told me, he said, he said, he said, Nehemiah, he said, look, boy, he said, I'm getting kind of tired of you. He said, listen, he said, what do you think of your mama? And I said, my mama is the best woman on earth and everything like that. He said, don't you know that that girl eventually is going to be somebody's mama and everything, and you trying to tell her that you, you want her to be your lackey, your, your slave or whatever, and she don't have a mind of her own, she got to do what you want to do like you want to when you want to? He said, do you want that for your mama? I couldn't say I couldn't say nothing but no, and everything. He said, "Well, treat the woman with respect," and everything else like that. And he made me go over and apologize to her, and everything, which was the hardest thing I figured I had to do was apologize to a woman. But I didn't know how to treat man. You know, I mean, you 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 basically in a house without a father and everything, and you, a, a young man in that house and everything, girly things is something you'll never do and everything. And they had to listen to you. And so my mom heard me say that and everything else like that. And so she came when I got home for that weekend. She said, uh, Sonny, she said, I want you to go in the house and wash the dishes. So I said, ma'am, I said, mom, I, said, I can't do that. I said, that's a lady's job. And boy, she, I knew she was going to try to hit me. So I jumped to her right side and forgot she was left-handed. And she cold-cocked me with her left hand and everything. And that night, I was in the bed, and I, I hear her and Eddie, Eddie on the phone talking and everything. She said, Coach, he said, he ain't coming back and everything else like that. And she said, I don't know what to do with him. He's on the corner here and everything, hanging out with the boys by the movie theater and everything. 
I ain't got nothing for him to do here. He said, what what you, what should I do? He said, get him to the bus stop and everything. So after the weekend, oh, we got to the bus stop and everything else like that. She said, now you just wait here. Somebody coming to see you and everything else like that. Where Eddie was there. And he said, boy, get your butt on that bus and let's go home. And by the way, as he was teaching Nehemiah about women and about responsibility and about life, we learn uh, in his autobiography, his co-author, Richard Lapchick, said that of all of his accomplishments, he maintains that his great achievements are that he had had only one wife and one job for 56 years, Eddie Robinson. One wife and one job. And here's Eddie talking about his marriage in that book. Doris and I just wanted to make our marriage special. We always said that the key in marriage was always knowing what you were saying because you can't take it back. While you can be forgiven, you can't take it back back once you've put it out there. Doris would tell me that some of her friends had their husbands or boyfriends say in the heat of an argument something like, you're not worth a damn, or something like it. Doris would tell me those women would never forget those words, even if they forgave their men. That was a great lesson for me with Doris. He also went on to say, We have a lot of fun together, and we go places together. I'm not criticizing them, but I see too many men not taking their wives with them or not taking them out to shows or dances. There are many times I think my romance with Doris aggravates them because they don't look so good to their own wives when their wives look at Doris and me. We hug and kiss each time we meet. Even if we saw each other only hours before, we need each other. We need to do almost everything together and let our kids see us. Let the team see us. Let them see what a marriage can really be. We call each other a name. I call her darling, baby, and dear. Doris calls me baby. I come home every day at noon. We have lunch with Doris. No matter what, I'm going to come home to eat that sandwich with her. We are both trying to lose weight, but it's not really working. Many friends want to take me out to dinner, and that's fine to go out. However, I'm going home to eat dinner with Doris first. We try to go out to eat together regularly. Couples have to learn to get out alone or with friends. It's just one more piece of a successful marriage. All the pieces add up to making it better. What a coach. What an example. We learned this about John Wooden, too. He taught his boys, look, Lunch with my bride every day. Winning's important, basketball's important, but let's put things in perspective. And boy, isn't it the worst thing in the world to talk to work for somebody who talks about their family and their family values and then never gives you a break with your family? Just the worst. Not Eddie Robinson, not John Wooden. They lived what they said, they said what they lived, and we all need people like that in our lives. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Coach Eddie Robinson, for the hour, this life deserves it. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories for the hour, a celebration of the life of Coach Eddie Robinson, born on this day in history in 1919. And by the way, all of our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, one of the finest places in this country to study all the things that matter in life, art, philosophy, history, sports, everything actually, under the sun and faith, all no better, no better place in this country to study. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. They have a dozen terrific online courses, and you can capture them and catch them at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And back to Coach Robinson's story, and we've been playing you clips from Nemiah Wilson, who played for Coach at Grambling, grew up without a father, and was fortunate that Coach and his wife Doris viewed him as an adopted son, an adopted son that they taught how to be a man, including ingraining in him the commitment to pursuing perfection. One day we was having uh, a hard time at practice. He wasn't satisfied. Nothing was satisfying him. So he said, okay, gentlemen, he said, we're going over behind this sled. And they said, we're going to hit this sled until I hear thump. He said, but what I've been hearing is thump, thump, thump. Somebody is a step late or a step ahead or whatever, and he said, we're going to hit this bag until I just hear one thump. And, boy, we was out there. It was getting dark and everything. His wife didn't come down and said, Eddie, when not you let them boys go? They got to go to class in the morning and everything. He said, feel right, turn on the light. That's what he called the groundkeeper, feel right. Feel right, turn on the lights and everything. And so I got to fussing about something. And uh, he said, here you are fussing, and I'm trying to get perfection and everything else like that. I said, well, Coach, is there anybody out here that you hate bad enough to pay this kind of price you're making us pay tonight? He said, boy, let me tell you something. He said, look. Jake Gators is a good friend of mine. He said, but hell, I ain't been able to whip Florida and them in years and stuff like that. And he said, what I'm afraid of right now is that Jake going to die before I whoop his ass. <laughs> and we, I started laughing. He, was like, he said, man, I was at a banquet with Jake. And he said, I told him, he said, damn it. He said, Jake, don't you die on me. Because I'm going to beat you at something before you die or I die. And if it, if it ain't food, football or whatever, he don't give a damn about it. He said, but if it root the pig, I'm going to beat you before you die. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's the kind of fire he had in him. And he said things not with malice but with candor where you laugh and you say, well, wow, this guy, is, he's, he's something, you know, and everything like that. And, um, We'd be laying in the in the the dorm and everything, and we would say, "We better get up because Coach Rob is coming through here in a minute." And he would put on a, a, one of Ray Charles' old records, "Hit the Road, Jack," and don't you come back no more. When you know that, when you hear that album, you're supposed to be already dressed and down the hill and everything. And he would pass through the dorm about a half an hour before blowing the whistle and everything. And when you get down the hill, if you're late, 
you're going to run them bleaches 10 times or so before or after practice, whatever you want to do. But you go run those bleaches and everything else like that. And so uh, all the guys complain and moan about it and everything else like that. And uh, he say, look, I'm sick of they always just moaning and stuff like that. He said, y'all like a little bunch of girls and everything. So Alphonse Dodson said, Coach, what you mean? He said, we're doing everything. You actually say, but you're moaning and groaning because you got to be out here for full 30. He said, hell, didn't y'all see when y'all were coming out here and that dog down here, the band just leaving? He said, hell, the band gets tougher than you guys. Nobody groaned about nothing else anymore. <laughs> but that's just the way you were. Yeah, that's just the way he was. And then, like all good things, they come to an end, and so did Nehemiah and Coach Robinson's time together at Grambling. And once again, during this ending, Coach Robinson played a critical role in Nehemiah's future. When I got ready to go there, to leave Grambling and the Leafs, I knew that I wasn't going back home because I was from a family of seven, and I was number three. There were four at home, and Mother was having a hard time taking care of them. And he just told me, you got to be a man and start picking up the load, you know. And so I realized that I had opportunities to do it, so I was just going to be a school teacher, you know. That's what everybody else do when they graduate and everything. But then I was over supply of school teachers available. And everything, and so he said, what do you expect to do after you leave here now? So I said, well, I'm going to get a job and, and help my family. He said, no. He said, I'm going to help you with that. You know, he said, everybody else believes that you're too small to make it to professional football. And he said, uh, I think you're as good as most players that I've seen and everything like that, and he said, so I'm going to call and arrange for you to have a shot at making a team in the AFL. And so I said, I don't have no money to be doing like that. He said, I'm going to talk to a friend of mine and have him just give you a $500 check to go to Denver and see whether or not you like the job that you're going for or whatever. So I came to Denver to see. I said, well, I ain't got to do nothing but go to Denver for $500. And if I put a good day, ain't coming out to $500. I'm going to see. And when I got here, it was the Denver Broncos. Didn't know it was them at first. And everything, we got here. And uh, they decided to give me the shot based on his word and everything. And, you know, the rest is history. I've never looked back. And when we asked Nimaya if he knew which of Eddie's friends provided the $500 for him to go to Denver and try out, he told us that Eddie wouldn't tell him. But he always thought that Eddie did it himself. Eddie did it. He just didn't want to take credit for it. And by the way, just a little bit more about this man uh, from his autobiography. And this is just a bit about his character when he was young. 
And during the summers while he was in high school, Eddie chose voluntarily to pick cotton. It wasn't so much for the money, he said. I wanted to use the hard work as a way to build up my body to get ready to play football. The other pickers couldn't understand me then, but I was using the remnants of slavery and sharecropping to my advantage instead of being used by others. I don't know how you stop a guy like this. I really don't. And this just shows you in the end the power of the mind, the power of character to overcome almost any obstacle. And then that Eddie Robinson chose to train up more men instead of take care of himself and do that for his entire, entire life, breaking every record, coaching record imaginable. Bear Bryant's, for goodness sake. And only one man has broken Eddie's career win record, the late Joe Paterno. When we come back, more on Coach Eddie Robinson, born on this day in history in 1919. This is Our American Stories, the final segment in our our hour-long celebration of Coach Eddie Robinson, who was born on this day in history in 1919, 56 years coaching at Grambling State University, 408 wins, but more important than that, all the lives saved and changed, all the men he mentored, and we're hearing and have heard from just one, and my goodness, Nehemiah's voice is just... Well, it's fantastic. And we have one more clip from him. And again, that's Nemiah Wilson, one of Coach Robinson's players, who he helped teach how to be a man and helped him get to the pros. And Nemiah went on to a decade-long career as the lightest player at 165 pounds. Here he is on occasionally visiting with Eddie in Denver when Nemiah was playing with the Denver Broncos. While I was here in Denver... When I first got here and everything, Eddie would be at the coaching clinic with all whites. He'd be the only black guy there and everything else like that. And I went and picked him up one night at the hotel here in Denver. And he said, uh, hey, my, he said, yeah, he said, you mind if a couple of my buddies come along with me? I said, no, coach, you know, a friend of yours is a friend of mine. And Woody Hayes and all of them jumped in the car. And that's the thing about Coach. He didn't see race. To him, they were all God's children. And he had a surprising message about race, rarely heard today. In one of the forwards to Coach Robinson's autobiography, Richard Lapchick wrote about this message, writing, quote, 
In spite of the racial barriers that surrounded his life, Coach somehow maintained a positive attitude about opportunity in America for people of all colors. Coach believes, quote, we are in a position to do a lot of good, and that's the real importance of this work. America offers more opportunity to young people than any other country in the world. And Coach set out to teach this to his players. Let's take a listen to him talking about teaching this love of country to the next generation. I believe about the youth like I think about football. Every football team has to be taught blocking and tackling. And every generation has got to be taught uh, Americanism. If you don't teach them, they're not going to get it through osmosis. I want to be an American football coach. Whatever contributions that uh, uh, Warner, Stagg, or Coach Bryant made, I want mine to stand out equal to those. I just want to stand for whatever is good in our society. Now, whatever that is, that's what Eddie Robinson wants to be. Eddie further stated, quote, Some have called me a great black coach all my life. I have simply wanted to be a great American. If football helped me achieve that, then I am once again grateful for this wonderful game. And he was successful in inculcating this message of his, of American opportunity, inside the souls of his players. Let's take a listen to one of them, Doug Williams, who went on to become the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. And he also won the Super Bowl MVP after passing for a Super Bowl record of 340 yards at the time and another record of passing for four touchdowns in a single quarter. Here's Doug Williams. Coach didn't look at it from the, from the X's and the O's and, and the fundamentals uh, on the football field, but he did look at it from the fundamentals of real life and going out in America and understanding that there's no excuses just because you was a black young man. That was no excuse for you not being able to survive, being able to be successful, and do the things that you were capable of doing. He made sure we understood that. I want to read to you more moving passages from Coach Eddie Robinson's autobiography, and these are about race. Here's the first on when he was a young boy. Quote, Like all black people, Daddy and I had Joe Lewis in common. I know a lot of white people also like Joe Lewis, especially after he beat the German boxer, Max Schmeling. That was the very first time I had ever heard a black person called an American. The announcer said, The American is entering the ring. That moment still lives with me today. I waited another three decades before I was called an American for the first time. I had to leave the country for that to happen, just like Joe Lewis. For me, I was called an American when we were in Tokyo to play. White people are often called great Americans. If you are black, it seemed to me at the time like you had to leave the country to be called what you'd always been. Black people loved Joe Lewis because he always said the right thing and was our role model. He would have been great in any business or profession, but he was a boxer. Joe Lewis sold more radios and newspapers in the black community than any other person. I bet there wasn't a black family in America that didn't buy a radio sometime during his career. And of course, that was to listen to the fights back before people had TVs and just gathered around the radio. Here's another passage on race and America from when he was Grambling's coach. Quote, We knew the places where blacks could go 
and we usually did. But as the movement heated up, so did our challenges. One time, we decided that we would try to eat at a Holiday Inn on the way to Houston. We called and asked them if they would serve us a meal and were surprised that they said it wouldn't be any problem. We told the manager that we would have our players go through the buffet line like they do at Grambling, eat and then leave. The manager admitted that the hotel was struggling for money so they would do what they had never done before, serve blacks. Nonetheless, we were concerned because the manager might react a little differently when 45 large black men poured out of a bus and into his hotel lobby. We got off the bus with ties, slacks, and jackets. Our coaches had talked to the team about how to act and what to expect. We went through different possibilities, including what to do if someone offended us. We didn't want to take any chances that we would provoke anything. After we finished eating, our student-athletes put everything back that was supposed to be put back. Our business manager paid the bill, and we began to leave. Then the hotel manager stopped us and asked, Can you look me up on the return trip? Tell us what time you're going to be passing through. We'll be here to serve you. From then on, we never had any problem with that kind of thing. There is too much competition out there. Heck, we are buying 50 to 60 meals at each stop. The dollar is all American. It doesn't know black from white. But it took until the late 1970s for some American businessmen to recognize that the dollar was colorblind, Robinson continued. We tested the waters early, but I know those young people tested a lot more at lunch counters in Greensboro and the Freedom Rides, which opened up interstate transportation throughout the South. They helped us get served that day at the Holiday Inn. We had some student-athletes who were activists during these times when the civil rights movement was peaking. I wasn't sure how to handle the protests. People were getting killed and hurt in the civil rights movement. I knew I didn't want that to happen to any of my guys. At the same time, I was grateful that some people had the courage to make a stand for us all. But the parents of my student-athletes were expecting me to take care of their son's education, safety, and well-being. Therefore, I saw some danger coming. I headed my student-athletes away from it. I know that in the minds of some people, I shouldn't have done that. But that's who I am. I believe that if I'm the leader, then I'm supposed to take some criticism when I tell my student-athletes what's right and what's wrong. I know there were people who were giving me the Uncle Tom stigma, but I was doing what I believe was the right thing. I wasn't going to go out and hurt someone or let one of my own get hurt to disprove that I was an Uncle Tom. And if an NFL team saw a guy protesting, I'm sure it would have been reluctant to draft him. I don't think that's right, but I am quite sure it was true. I told my student-athletes that every NFL owner is white, Nobody who looked like me has ever owned an NFL team. So if an owner thinks one of my student-athletes hates whites because he reads about him protesting, he's not going to take him. Protesting doesn't mean hating others. It means just the opposite. But if it's misrepresented or misinterpreted, then one more door would quickly be shut. Doors, by the way, that Robinson was always trying to open. Their battlefield in the civil rights movement was to try to get more black players on the national playing field to make black excellence impossible to ignore and equated with American excellence. Different people, different battlefields in the civil rights movement and every movement, but in the end all working towards the same goal. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. 
Coach Eddie Robinson, the black football coach who most catalyzed the integration of football in the South, born on this day in history, I want to close with a touching moment that occurred just before his passing on April 3rd, 2007. He was suffering from Alzheimer's, and many of his players returned one last time to his home to sing him this, the Grambling Fight Song. And there you have it, the boys, the men, singing to the man who taught them how to be men. Coach Eddie Robinson for the hour. He was born on this day in history in 1919. Grambling State University was where he coached. But America, the world, that was his canvas. And he changed the world through a little sport called football. This is Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network to hear all that we do and all of our This Days and Histories. There are over 125 now, and I think you'll find so many of them as compelling.